Great to, uh, to be with you, whether you're here at our worship center, you're out on the patio, or uh, you're joining us online. My name's Michael, and I'm one of the pastors here as well. And really looking forward to this time of uh, teaching with you as we continue in the Word. But before we jump in, I've got a couple important announcements of my own that are, are really for our whole church. And uh, so the first one was that uh, hopefully you received in your email this week uh, a video from Pastor Dre. Uh, just about last week, we had an amazing week uh, last weekend at Easter. And uh, I think a lot of people decided, hey, this was the day we're coming back. And uh, so it was so great to see so many of you that were, were here last weekend, perhaps for the first time. But what really surprised me was that there was a tremendous turnout at the 11 o'clock uh, service, even though we didn't have kids ministry there or anything like th uh, that. Well, we did have it last week, but we, have, we, we haven't normally had that. And so uh, as a result of that, we feel like the time is right uh, that we're going to make this switch uh, to bring the 11 o'clock service indoors. So we're going back to our pre-COVID uh, schedule. We have a 5.30 service Saturday night, uh, Sunday 9 in the morning, and 11, all of them indoors. Now, uh, we will continue to live stream uh, the, the service uh, whenever we're indoors, outdoors on the patio. It's been very popular. In fact, at 9 o'clock in the morning, uh, we have almost as many people uh, who are out there watching the live stream as at 11 when we're out there live. So it's been very popular. Uh, so we'll continue to do that. Uh, so we're excited about that. want to make that announcement. Um, and that'll start this weekend. And then uh, the other thing that kind of goes hand in glove with that is we really want to begin to provide kids ministry at our 11 o'clock service. And so to do that, we're going to need about 50 more volunteers. So it takes about 200 volunteers to staff our kids ministry. Um, and uh, a lot of that is because we, a lot of our volunteers work like uh, kind of uh, A-B schedule, half time on, half time off. And, uh, and so if we were going to expand to the 11 o'clock, we're going to need about 50 more people. So inside of your program, uh, you've got this handout. I want to call your attention to it. A uh, couple great-looking kids there on the front. It says RPK, Rocky Peak Kids. If you're online, uh, there on your announcement sheet, if you download that, you'll see the same information. And so if you open it up on the inside, you'll see what we're looking for, the kind of person. We're looking for uh, 24 people to work with the nursery through kinder, uh, first through fifth grade, 18, and then, 40, uh, and then seven people at the check-in ki uh, kiosk outside. So that's a combination between 49 new people at uh, both service, between the two services, you know, the 9 o'clock and the 11 o'clock. Uh, and so uh, if you're interested in that, whether you're here today or you're watching online or you're out in the patio, there's a couple ways you can indicate your interest, that you're interested in pursuing that as a possibility. The first one is that inside your program, you have this Rocky Peak Kids card. You can just fill it out and then drop it in at the giving kiosk as you leave the worship center or out in the patio. Uh, or another way to do it is to, uh, to text RPK to the number that's on the screen right here at 818-408-4490, and that'll bring up a digital registration card. So there's a couple ways to express your interest. Uh, but we're excited about this, and I'm just really praying that God would be speaking to the right people in our church and saying, hey, yeah, it's time for me to get back and using my gifts to serve our kids well, serve our families well, uh, so that we can open up uh, in the very near future, hopefully, at the 11 o'clock service as we begin to kind of rebuild our entire ministry uh, together. Amen? 
Amen. So um, we're going to go into our time of teaching right now. Uh, but uh, uh, what I want to do is just kind of lead us in prayer. Hopefully you've already, you know, you've got the program. You've got your uh, note sheet. You're definitely going to need that. Uh, and so hopefully you've, you've got that or you've downloaded that. And uh, we're going to pray and get and jump in. You guys ready to go? Okay. Father, we're just excited to be here uh, at this time, this space, uh, knowing that every time we meet is not an accident, that every time that we have this chance to meet, that you've called us together as a church to gather around your word, to listen to the voice of your spirit. And so together as a church, we take that next step in our journey with you. And we realize, Lord, that that'll look different for different people uh, that, uh, that make up our community here. But we're very aware that without the work of your spirit, that doesn't happen. Uh, Lord, just this morning, I was meditating, kind of uh, memorizing that verse, that the kingdom of God does not consist in words, but in power. And so, Lord, we, we just acknowledge it's not about what I say, it's about what you say through your word that's really how it makes a difference. So we pray that you would come and you'd speak uh, all weekend long through the power of your spirit to our church. We pray this in your name. And everyone said, amen. amen. Well, our story starts today on a, a, on a uh, high plateau on the ridge of a mountain, uh, kind of a trail on the ridge of a mountain that has uh, to, that's kind of a, the city, near a city that uh, has one large mountain to the south and one large mountain to the north. And uh, these two mountains are very famous. Um, and yet it's the one to the south that has really defined her life. It's that the mountain to the south that has not only defined her life, but it's defined the life of her people, the story of her nation. This is the sacred mountain. This is the mountain where her people have come to worship for 750 years. This is the mountain where once they actually built a temple until it was destroyed in a war. And yet, even though it's gone now, it's still the most, their most sacred site. And so she's grown up in the shadow of this mountain. She's grown up in this city that lies between these two mountains. And this mountain tells their story. It plays a major part in the narrative of her people. And yet today, as she heads out of town, she's about to have a conversation that's not only gonna change her life, but it's gonna challenge everything she believes about this mountain and all that this mountain stands for. Well, today we are continuing this series that we've been in like forever. Uh, that's been about two or three months um, called Signs of Path to Life. And if you're brand new, I wanna welcome you. Uh, this is a series that's uh, an in-depth study of the life of Jesus as seen through the eyes of one of his closest friends, followers, confidants, a man by the name of John, we call him the Apostle John. And what John is doing, uh, in turn, is he's inviting us to go with him on a journey where he shares his personal firsthand experiences with the life and the teaching of Jesus, but with special focus on seven supernatural signs that happens over the three years that they're together that, that especially define, help us understand who Jesus is and why he's come and his message for us, what I'm calling the path to life. And so if you were here uh, two weeks ago, the week before Easter, we, we, uh, 
we began to listen in on one of the most famous conversations that Jesus ever had. It was with a, a woman uh, that uh, was very unlikely, at least in that culture, you'd ever expect this conversation uh, to happen. Uh, first of all, um, Jesus, as you know, was a Jew. And this woman was a Samaritan. And as we've talked about before, that Jews and Samaritans don't get along. They, they, this, they have a deep set kind of racial, political, uh, religious hostility that goes back 750 years. Uh, secondly, um, Jesus is a man and she is a woman. And in that culture for a, a religious Jew, uh, a God-fearing Jew would not be seen talking with a woman, especially one-on-one, -on -one, alone, uh, out in public. And on top of that, as we learn, uh, as we'll learn today, this is a woman with a very sketchy past. She's been married five times, and she's currently living with her boyfriend, which in that very conservative, sexually conservative culture, kind of marks her from the outset as a super sinner. And yet in spite of this, Jesus pursues this woman. He goes after this woman and he engages her in this powerful conversation. And if you were here last time, we watched as he offers her this amazing gift of God, uh, what he called living water, this, this new relationship with God by his Holy Spirit that would transform her life, turn into a spring of water inside of her that could satisfy the deepest thirst of her heart. And so the last time we watched, we, we followed this conversation along to the point where she said, yes, I'm in. Will you please give me this gift? Then we cut it off there. So today we're gonna pick it up where we left off two weeks ago. And so if you have your Bibles, you have your apps, we're, we're gonna look at John chapter four. We're gonna pick up the story where we left off last time at verse 16. And there in your note sheet is a section that's called uh, signs the conversation part two. So in verse, uh, verse 16, Jesus has just offered her this gift of living water. She said, please give me this gift. And so Jesus uh, is gonna take the conversation to a whole new level. And he says in verse 16, um, well, go call your husband and come back. Now, Jesus knows, of course, that she doesn't have a husband currently. He knows she's been married five times. He knows that she's currently living with her boyfriend. This very intentional question. But she doesn't know that he knows. And so he's just like, uh, wow, this is an amazing gift I'm giving you. Why don't you go get your husband because I want to tell him about it too. And so she tries to deflect the question. She says, I, I have no husband. I'm, I'm single right now. I'm not married, which was technically true. Um, but Jesus is not going to let her off. Um, he's going to force her to face the truth about herself. As we'll see, not to humiliate her, uh, not to uh, condemn her, um, but because he knows that to receive living water, we have to come clean. And so he says uh, to her, you know, you're right when you say you have no husband. 
Remember, this is, remember, this is a day and age there's no Facebook, <laughs> right? So it's like there's no one tracking you. And so uh, he says, you're right when you say you have no husband. The fact is uh, you've had five husbands and the man you have now, you know, he's not really your husband. So what you've said is quite true. Do you sense that? There's no word of condemnation. There's no uh, humiliation. Um, He is just forcing her to face the truth and to come clean about her life. And uh, of course, since it's a day and age where there is no Facebook, and this is a man she just met in the middle of a non-communicative culture, right? Um, There's no way that he could know this without supernatural information. And so she assumes he's a prophet. And so she says in verse 19, sir, the woman said, I can see that you're a prophet. And so now she's going to take the attention off of herself and shift the conversation. Have you ever done this? Like when someone's getting a little too close to the truth, it's like, you, yeah, you're just sort of like, yeah, well, what about that bird over there? You know, it's like, it's like you're going to shift the conversation. And so she is going to raise a theological, a major theological issue that separates Jews and Samaritans. Now, to understand this issue, we have to understand a little bit about the history of Jews and Samaritans and why there's this hostility. And we don't have time today to go in and kind of tell the whole story, but this hostility goes back 750 years to where the northern kingdom of Israel, back when there was a southern kingdom and a northern kingdom of Israel, and the northern kingdom, the capital was at Samaria. And in, back in like 722 BC, the northern kingdom of Israel was conquered by the superpower of Assyria. And they moved out most of the Jews, and they moved in other nations to mix with the Jews. And so these people became sort of a half-breed, not just physically, but spiritually, religiously. And so they kind of developed an alternate religion, kind of like a cult would today. And so for Jews, there's a a deep, we don't want anything to do with them. They're not real Jews, right? And we'll see other things that, that go into that. But as a result of that, for reasons I won't go into, the, the Samaritans believed that the one place where they were supposed to worship was this mountain right outside their city of Sychar that's called Mount Gerizim. So there's Mount Gerizim to the south, Mount Ebal to the north, two very important, famous mountains in Israeli history. And the Samaritans had come to believe that the right place to worship God was on Mount Gerizim. And the Jews, of course, believed that the place, the only place to worship God, the only place to offer sacrifice was where? It's Jerusalem, right? The city of the great king. And so this was a major conflict. And this takes us back to the story we started the day with about this woman who's grown up in the shadow of this mountain that's defined her life and the life of her people. 
It's their place of sacred worship. In fact, at one point they had built a temple on Mount Gerizim, but guess what? 150 years before this conversation between Jesus and the woman, there was a war between the Jews and the Samaritans, and the Samaritans won and tore down that temple. So it's just a very sore spot between them. And so, as Jesus says, yeah, that's true, you don't, you're not currently married, you are single, you've had five husbands, you're currently living with your boyfriend, she's like, oh my goodness, this guy's a prophet. And she's gonna take the attention off of herself and she's gonna bring up this major theological question. Since you're a prophet, let's get you to weigh in on this big issue of where we should worship. And so, in verse 19, the woman said, sir, I can see that you're a prophet. So our ancestors, talking about the Samaritans, they worshiped on this mountain at this temple, right? But you Jews claim that the place where we must worship is Jerusalem. That's the place where heaven meets earth. That's the only place where sacrifice for sin can be made. It's, it's a place of God's special presence. And so, so which is it? And I want you to notice what Jesus is going to do. He's gonna sidestep the entire question. And he's gonna say, woman, believe me, a time is coming when you will worship the Father neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem. So what he says is, hey, there's a time coming where it's no longer going to matter where you worship. But he's gonna go on to say, but it is very important who you worship and how you worship. And so he goes on to say, and he's gonna challenge her. And he's gonna say, you Samaritans worship what you do not know. Now I want you to catch that, underline that. You Samaritans worship what you do not know. You think you know God? You think you know the truth? You think you know the path of life, but you're wrong. You are off base. You're not right. You worship what you don't know. Now, let me give a quick sidebar here. One of the reasons, and this is very important, one of the reasons why the Samaritans worship what they did not know is that they had rejected most of the Hebrew Bible as authoritative. So the Samaritans only believed that the first five books of the Old Testament, the Hebrew Bible, what we call the law or the Pentateuch, they only believed that the first five books were inspired by God and Bible. So they rejected the rest of the 34 books in our Old Testament. And as a result, they had a very lopsided view of who God is, who the Messiah was, the promises, how they were to live. And so, so this is one of the reasons. So Jesus says, hey, like, I know that this is how you've been raised. Now, I know what you believe, but you're wrong. You're in the dark spiritually. The Jews are actually right. And look what he says. He says, you Samaritans worship what you do not know, but we, talking about Jews, we worship what we do know, for salvation is from the Jews. This is part of God's big picture plan for the whole world that he'd raise up the nation of Israel that in spite of all the problems, he would reveal himself 
to Israel and through the word and one day through the Messiah and that's how salvation would come. And so he challenges her whole spiritual paradigm. And he says, yet a time is coming and has now come. Talking about his coming, right? His coming, uh, his coming death, his coming resurrection, the coming of the Holy Spirit. He says, uh, a time is coming. In fact, it's now come. I mean, it's kind of started. When true worshipers will worship the Father in the spirit and in truth. Right, through the power of the Holy Spirit, the messianic age is the promise of the coming of the Spirit. They're gonna worship in the Spirit and in truth. They're gonna worship God as he really is. And then look what he says next. He says, for they are the kind of worshipers the Father, what? He says, my Father is searching after people who want to enter into this new life-giving, river of life type experience with God through the power of the Holy Spirit so they, they really know God in truth through the power of his spirit. He says God's looking for people who want to enter into that kind of relationship. And he says God is spirit. Like he's not a physical being. And his worshipers must worship in the spirit and in truth. And so all this talk about a time is coming and now is and we won't worship in a place anymore and it won't matter. It triggers in her mind, oh, you're talking about when Messiah comes. Now, it's interesting because we know from ancient literature that the Samaritans had sort of a quasi-concept of a Messiah, very different than Jewish because they didn't have all the scriptures, right? They were, but they had, a, they had an idea about a, a great prophet that would come that was sort of like, kind of equivalent to a Messiah that Moses had talked about in the first five books. And so she says, well, the woman says, well, I know that Messiah called Christ. So remember in Hebrew, uh, the, word for, uh, the word for Messiah comes from Hebrew, but the, uh, the Greek equivalent of Messiah is Christ, right? So John, for his, for his Greek readers, he says, uh, he, he kind of explains this. She says, I know that Messiah, and John says, called Christ, is coming. And when he comes, he will explain everything to us. And this is amazing because out here in the middle of nowhere, at a well outside a Samaritan city, Jesus is going to be clearer with this woman with this shady past than he is with just about anyone in his whole ministry. Very likely because within Judaism, there was, there was such, uh, so much baggage attached to the word Messiah that Jesus seemed to, to kind of shy away from it so he could redefine that term. But here with this Samaritan woman who didn't have all that baggage, look at how straightforward he is. You're gonna look hard in all the gospels for any time when Jesus will be this straightforward with any audience until he's arrested. And in verse 26, Jesus declared, I, the one speaking to you, I am he. And can I tell you something? In the Greek, it does not say, I am he. In the Greek, it says, I am. And we're gonna see this as the gospel of John unfolds. There's gonna be a lot of I am's. Right, that kind of uh, 
that brings back recollections of the great I am, statements of Exodus and Isaiah. And here it's just very subtle, but by the time we get to chapter eight, he will no longer be being subtle. Because uh, in the end of chapter eight, when he's in Jerusalem, he'll say, before Abraham was born, I am. And they will pick up stones to stone him. But here, still subtle. But is I, the, uh, the, uh, the one who's speaking to you, I am. And so with this, the woman is so blown away. At this point, like he's offered her this living water. He's claimed that a time where you'll worship, it won't matter where you worship, this new time is coming. He's talked to this new age of spirit and truth. I'm sure she doesn't understand half of what he's saying, but he's backed it up by this supernatural knowledge about her romantic life. And she is like, like, could this be? Could this be I'm talking to Messiah? And she's so excited, she leaves her water jug there and she heads hightails it back to the city and begins telling everyone that she can know, uh, come and meet a man who told me everything I've done. And everyone's like, everything? Whoa, that's a lot. Uh, could this be the Christ? And next week we'll come back and see what happens uh, as she goes into town and as his disciples come back. But for today, I want to stop here and I want to focus in on uh, this amazing gift, offer this gift of uh, living water that Jesus makes to this woman. Um, but he's also going to require of her, if you're going to drink, if you're going to receive and drink deeply of this living water, there's two steps you have to take. And can I tell you, we're going to see these steps throughout the Gospel of John, right? So there in your note sheet is a section called Living Water, the Two Steps. So notice at the top, there's an opening phrase, to drink, to drink deeply of living water, right? To drink deeply. Uh, if we want to receive that living water when we come to Jesus and then drink deeply of living water in our relationship with Jesus, there's two steps that we have to take. And here's number one. The first step is we need to face the truth about ourselves. We, have, we, need to take, we need to face the truth about ourselves. Now, let's talk about this. I need to talk with you about truth a little bit. Because in our culture, we live in the midst of, we often call it a kind of a, a postmodern age, like philosophically. And one of the marks of a postmodern age or philosophy is that that a culture loses the concept of absolute truth. They, a culture loses the confidence that it's possible to know and, that there, and to discover, and there actually is a truth that is uh, ultimate truth, absolute truth, things that are true always for all people at all times. Um, and so we, we live in a culture where we've, uh, our culture has lost confidence for the most part, not completely, but for the most part, in, in what I would call truth with a capital T. We live in the midst of a culture that, that has, uh, believes in my truth and your truth. Hey, what's your truth? Well, this is my truth. 
but we don't believe in the truth. Are you with me? That there's my truth, my subjective truth, and your subjective truth, but there is no such thing as objective truth with a capital T. Truth for all people at all times. And what we're gonna see today is that Jesus says that if we're going to enter into this relationship with him, to receive this living water that he's offered, this new life by the power of his spirit, that we are going to have to take two important steps. We're gonna have to face the truth about ourselves and we're gonna have to embrace the truth about God and the path to life. And I wanna start by looking at this first step that we have to take to face the truth about ourselves. And I pointed this out when I went through the passage, but this is why after Jesus offers her living water and she finally says, I'm in, I want it. The first thing he says is go tell, get your husband. Now why does he say, Go get your husband. Because Jesus knows that if she is going to receive the living water, she has got to come clean with him about the truth of her life. You see, God calls us into a real and authentic relationship. God is not up for a fake relationship. This is what religion is. Religion is about fake relationships. Religion is about manipulating God. Religion is about pretending to be something we're not. But that is not why Jesus has come. He has come to invite us into real life-changing relationship. But to have real relationship, there has to be radical honesty. There has to be radical authenticity. And so this is why I pointed out, when Jesus, did you catch what he did? When he said, When she said, "Uh, I don't have a husband, he could have left it there. But that was not the real truth about her life, was it? It was technically true. Yeah, I'm not currently married. I'm single, but Jesus wouldn't let her off. He says, well, that's technically true. And as you listen to it, you don't sense any condemnation. Remember what we learned in John 3? That he did not come to condemn the world. He came to rescue the world. But he can't rescue the world until we're honest with him. And until we're willing to be radically honest with Jesus about the truth about ourselves, that we can't drink deeply of the living water. We have to come clean. And so he pushes her. And I, I want you to catch this. Not only is this so important for her to come clean so that they can have a real relationship, but this is important because when we don't come clean, you know what happens? We tend to believe that if I really came clean, he would no longer offer me the living water. Are you with me? We want to pretend we're better than we are because we're afraid that if, he, if we're really honest about who we are, that he would withdraw his offer of living water. And Jesus wants us to know, I'm not here because you deserve what I'm offering. I'm here because I love you as you are. Amen. But if we're going to have a relationship, you have to be radically honest. You have to admit the reality, your, your sin, your brokenness, 
your failures, your thirst. Because until we're ready to admit the truth about ourselves, we're not ready to receive a Messiah who can change things. And you know, Jesus talked about this so often. Uh, one of my favorite times, you know, the, the religious leaders, one of their biggest gripes about Jesus was that he hung out with, women, with, with, with people like this woman, right? That they were very upset with him because he would often hang out with tax gatherers and sinners, right? And the reason was the religious leaders had a theory. And their theory went like this, that if you want to get close to a holy God, you need to stay far away from people who aren't holy because it will like kind of rub off on you. But Jesus said, so they, they couldn't understand why he would want to hang out with women like this woman. Why would he pursue this woman? And Jesus said, no, you don't understand. He said, I have not come for the healthy. I've come for the sick. And so he compares himself to a doctor. And when he says that, he's not saying there's two kinds of human beings, those who are healthy and those who are sick. I've just come for these people. What Jesus is saying is until we're willing to be honest with our sickness, not even Jesus can help us. As I've often said, I don't care if you have the best doctor in all the world. When you go for your appointment, if you're not honest about your symptoms, they can't give you the right prescription. Like, and so here's what I want you to catch, that as followers of Jesus, this is how we start our journey with Jesus, right? This is how we start by coming just as I am, right? We, we come to him and we're, honest about our, our sin, our brokenness, uh, the evil in our hearts, what we've done. We're, we're honest about that. That's how we start our relationship with Jesus. But I want you to catch this. This is how our relationship grows as well. And the moment we stop being radically honest, we stop drinking deeply of living water. You know, there's a... Uh, there's a great verse. We often teach this verse to new believers. I'm sure many are familiar with it. It's there on your note sheet. It's a verse actually written by the Apostle John in his little letter at the end of the New Testament. But he says, if we confess our sins, God is faithful and just, and he'll forgive us our sins, and he'll purify us from all unrighteousness. John says, if we'll, if we'll come clean, that God will do what he's promised, and he will uh, forgive us and then cleanse us from uh, our sin, from our right unrighteousness. And so, you know, some, we, we often teach this to new believers that, that, hey, when you've come to Jesus now, that when you sin, it's important you confess your sins. And that's absolutely right. But you know what? We often have misunderstood what that's about. And often what happens as we grow is we begin to get sort of this, uh, this fear. And what develops is a kind of a morbid introspection. Hey, is there anything in my life I haven't confessed before I go to bed? Because if I do, my relationship with Jesus is gonna be broken or he's not gonna answer my prayers. And we've really misunderstood what this is about. What this is about is that 
that God has called us. In fact, earlier in this chapter, it says God is light and in him there's no darkness. And if we claim to have a relationship but live in darkness, we lie, we don't do the truth. That, that if we want a relationship with Jesus, we have to come into the light. Amen. And all he's saying is that instead of hiding when we fail, instead of hiding uh, when we have character issues, instead of hiding when we've done wrong, that no, no, we just need, we need to come into the light because it's there that we've been healed and restored Amen. and forgiven. Right? And so the first step that we have to take if we're going to drink deeply of this living water is we have to learn to face the truth about ourselves. But the second step that we need to take is we have to embrace the truth about God. So we, the first step is we, we face the truth. So the second, we have to embrace the truth about, about God and, and the, his path to life. And we see it here in this, in this account, don't we? First of all, he, he kind of forced her to face the truth about herself, to get in touch with her brokenness and her need for a savior and her need for this new life. And so it starts there, but then when she tries to redirect the conversation and she brings up this important theological issue that separated them, um, Jesus uh, quickly... Um, bypasses that issue. And he says, you know, there's a time coming when where you worship, I realize it's a big issue right now, is it, is it Jerusalem or, or Gerizim? I mean, that's been an important issue, but there's a time coming when that's not gonna be an issue. He says, but here is what's an issue. Who you, so where you worship is not important. We've learned that this last year, right? We can worship outdoors. We can worship outside our life group. We can worship inside. We, like where you worship is not important. But who you worship and how you worship, that is important. And I want you to catch again what he says to her in verse, uh, chapter four, verse 22, there in your note sheet. You Samaritans worship what you do not know. You're worshiping, but you don't know what you're doing. It reminds me of what the Apostle Paul said in Acts chapter 17 when he went to Athens. And the, Athens, the, the city of Athens was full of all these idols. And he finally came to this God that said, to the unknown God. Do <laughs> you remember that? And he started his sermon there at Athens by saying, you know, I, I, I notice that you're very religious your, your city is full of temples and full of different gods and idols, but I found this one idol to a God who's unknown. And he said, I've come to tell you about that God. <laughs> I was, you're, worship, you're worshiping in the dark, right? You're sincere, you're committed, you're passionate, but you're in the dark. You don't know what you're worshiping. You're, you're completely wrong about this. 
I want you to catch, I want you to emotionally connect with this. This, very, this, this woman who's grown up in this city, she identifies as a Samaritan. She's been taught her whole life that the only the first five books of the Bible are really scripture. The Jews are wrong. And those Jews are wrong. You don't worship in Jerusalem. You worship here on Mount Gerizim because when the nation of Israel first came in, this is where the covenant stood and the Levites stood and they called from Mount Gerizim to Mount Ebal and they read the law of God and that's the place where we should have been worshiping. And they are wrong and you've bought this your whole life. And this man you've just met said, you are completely wrong. The Jews are right. For salvation comes through the Jews. And I want you to catch what a, like emotional earthquake. This would be like today, someone saying to, say, maybe like a Mormon, or a Jehovah, like, no, everything you believe is wrong. You see what I'm saying? And what Jesus says is if you want to drink deeply of living water, you want to receive this, you have to be willing to leave your old paradigms behind. Because God is looking for people, for true worshipers who will worship him in the power of his spirit, but in truth the way he really is. And you can't drink deeply unless you worship him in truth. Now, I want you to catch how controversial that is today. How that flies in the face of everything in our culture, doesn't it? We live in a culture today that again, it's a postmodern culture. And so there is no absolute truth about God. There is no one way any way will work, as long as you're sincere, as long as you're, it works for you. There is no way of life. It's like, you, hey, what works for you? What works for you with your sexuality? What works for you with your gender? What works for you with your, uh, your relationships? What works for you with your morals, for your ethics? What works for you in terms of who is God to you? You see, again, we live in a culture, there is no truth with a capital T. And so someone will say, this is my truth, and that's your truth, and that's great that it's your truth, just don't try to put your truth on me. Because then we got a problem. I want you to catch something, that's exactly what Jesus did. He just lowered the boom and put his truth on her and said, you worship what you do not know. And if you want to drink deeply of living water, you have to worship God in spirit and truth because those are the kind of worshipers the Father seeks. And so if we're going to drink deeply of living water, we have to face the truth about ourselves we have to embrace the truth about God and the true path to life. Now, this leads to an important question then. So there in your note sheet, living water, embracing the truth. So the question I have is for you, very personal question, right? So this is not for your neighbor to answer for you. Though if you have great insight, you might wanna share it. 
that the question is very simple. How do you respond to new truth in your life? What was happening with this woman is Jesus was presenting with new truth. Something that was new, something that was controversial, something that was outside of her paradigm. And so how do you respond when Jesus comes to you through his spirit, through his word, how, how do you respond when Jesus comes to you and offers you new truth about either who you are or about who he is and the path to life? How do you respond? And we've seen today that this is not always easy. For this woman, we don't really know for sure why she asked this question. Is it this mountain or your mountain? Maybe it was a genuine question from her heart. But it often, it seems like, it's like the truth is getting a little too hot for her. And it seems, have you ever taught you're sharing Jesus with someone? They're like, well, what about the dinosaurs? (laughs) We're just looking for anything to derail this because it's getting a little too close to comfort, right? And we can do that in our own lives. You see, one of the jobs of the Holy Spirit, and and this is how the Holy Spirit leads us to new life, it's how we drink more deeply, is the Holy Spirit uh, gradually reveals truth to us about ourselves. And when he does, we uh, we have a choice to make how we will respond to that truth that he's revealing about our character about our life, about our character, about our motives, about our attitude, about who we are. And the reality is when Jesus begins to reveal through his word, through his spirit, through other people, when he begins to reveal weaknesses in our character, the temptation is always to ignore, to deny, to justify, to rationalize, to minimize, to excuse, to blame, or to project. This is what we do as human beings. Have you ever noticed that one? It's like, how often do you go to someone and say, hey, I see this in your life, I think there's a blind spot there. How many times do people say, Thank you very much for telling me I have an anger problem. (laughs) Wow, what a gift of God. I I didn't realize I was so arrogant. Thank you for bringing, like, like that's not how this normally goes. Have you noticed that? It's crazy how other people are so slow. Hey, I think you might have an attitude. Oh, what about me? Hey, me, I, what about you? You think I got an issue? What about you? This is human nature, isn't it? And yet, here's what I want you to catch, is that when Jesus is revealing truth about our stuff, it's never to condemn us, to humiliate us. He's revealing it so we can drink more deeply of the life that he's come to give us. What about truth about God? And we say we gotta face the truth about ourselves, we have to embrace the truth about God and the path of life. What about that? See, this is how the Holy Spirit works, is that, is that through, through his 
through his voice, through his word, through teaching, that the Holy Spirit begins to reveal new truth about God and the path of life, just like he did to this Samaritan woman. And the question is, is when he's, when the Holy Spirit is revealing new truth that contradicts what you've been taught, that contradicts what you believe, that contradicts what's believed by our culture, it could be about spiritual life, it could be about human sexuality, it could be about relationships, it could be about marriage, it could be about politics, it could be about morality or parenting. When, if, if Jesus comes to you and wants to, to show you some new truth that's gonna set you free, but it's different than what you believed, how do you respond? You see, one of the biggest issues the Samaritans had, the reason that they were in the dark was that they didn't know the word. They rejected flat out most of the old time, they didn't know the word. And that's why they're in the dark. And so what happens in our life is when, when Jesus begins to unfold his word, it is going to challenge our opinions, our beliefs, what we've been taught. And the question is, when he challenges us, how do we respond? Let me ask you, are you willing to bring your worldview your opinions under the authority of Jesus and his word. Because that's what he was doing with the Samaritan woman. He said, listen, if you want to drink deeply, I got to tell you that everything you believe is wrong. That could not have been easy for her. And yet, it was a path to life. Let me give you two or three just really quick examples to get as practical as I can. Some of you have grown up in a Catholic background. And there's a lot of great things about that. There's a lot of great truth within the Catholic church. But there's also a lot of things that are like diametrically opposed to the teaching of Jesus and the word of God. Whether it's who Mary is, how sins are forgiven, praying to the saints, purgatory, uh, the sacraments, confession. We could go on and on. And my, my point here is not to pick on Catholic theology. That's not the point. The point is that if you come out of that, Jesus is going to need to challenge you to set you free. You see? And how will you respond when the word and what you've been taught are at odds. Um, some of you have come to Jesus or you're coming to Jesus out of a new age background, sort of an Oprah spirituality. Right? And what happens when we come out of that background, what we wanna do is kinda take our new age theology and we wanna blend it with the Bible. But what you're gonna find is you're gonna come into some hard collisions there. Like, for example, hell, right? For example, one way. For example, the blood of Jesus forgives us. You're gonna come, and so when those collisions happen, will you let Jesus say to you, you you've been worshiping what you do not know? And if you're gonna drink deeply, 
You have to worship in spirit and in truth. For, some, for, for all of us, we're impacted, we're coming just out of this secular culture that has such strong views, whether it's about politics, whether it's about human sexuality, that's a huge one. This whole gender issue in our culture right now, wanting to redefine human biology. And it's coming at us in every way. relationships, how relationships work, marry, we could go on and on. And we're coming to Jesus out of this culture. And so when Jesus, Jesus is often gonna say to us, you're worshiping what you do not know. And he's gonna, he's gonna call us through his spirit and his word to leave things behind so that we can drink deeply of living water. You know, it's such a great verse in Romans chapter 12 and verse two, the apostle Paul says to the believers in Rome, he says, do not conform to the pattern of this world. In the Greek, it's the schema of this world, the schemes, you know, the mental schemas, the mental world. Do not conform, but, but be transformed by what? The renewing of your mind. And he says, then, you know, once your mind is renewed, you'll be able to test and approve, I like the word experience, what God's will is, his good, pleasing, and perfect will. Paul says, God has a will for your life. It's good, it's pleasing, it's perfect. But in order to experience it, your mind has to be transformed. And for that to happen, we have to grow in our humility to where we're willing to face the truth about ourselves, and we're willing to embrace the truth about God and the path to life, that when Jesus comes by his spirit and his word and says, you're worshiping what you do not know, we say, yes, Lord, because we want to worship in spirit and in truth, and we wanna drink deeply of his living water. Amen? Amen. Amen. Let's pray together. Father, we just thank you so much for the beauty of your word. And Jesus, thank you for coming to deliver it to us. And we look to you as our Lord, our leader, our savior. And Lord, we, we just say, we the first to admit that with our culture crushing in, our backgrounds crushing in, that often it's so tempting to just go with the flow. And yet, Lord, we know that if we're going to drink deeply of this living water, this new life, that we have to worship by the power of your spirit and we have to worship in the realm of truth. And so Father, we pray that we would learn to, to run to you when we see these character faults in ourselves. There's no need, there's no need to hide. You're our doctor, you're our father, you've come to heal us, you already know. And that when you're revealing new truth about who you are and the path to life, God, that we would come under your leadership, that we might run to you to be healed and restored. As you'll say later in this gospel, that you will know the truth and the truth will set you free. We pray this in Jesus' name. And everyone said, amen. amen.